Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Everyone and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest today is Kristen Ross, the author of Communal Luxury, The Political Imaginary of the Paris Commune, and the book was published by Verso Books in 2015. Hi there, Kristen. Hi, Roxanne. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Well, thank you. This is really a treat. It is for me as well. So, Kristen, could I ask you to get us started by just telling us how you got started working on France? Oh, on France? Yeah. Gosh, I don't know if I can remember that far. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, I think it was really uh, pretty much of a political decision. It came out of um, my own experience of the 60s in, in the U.S. And my decision was had to do with the fact that, that uh, France seemed to me to at once embody a kind of uh, exciting revolutionary tradition. And at the time when I was um, starting out, I had, I had come from a very strong Marxist background as an undergraduate. You know, I had studied with people like Norman O'Brown and Herbert Marcuse and Gregory Bateson and, you know, sort of exciting theoretical people. And, who weren't necessarily directly involved with France, and yet France at that moment was very interesting politically and theoretically. So it seemed to me that that was the direction to go in when I went to graduate school. And the genesis of this project in particular? Well, it's been a long genesis because, you know, I wrote another book about the commune Mm -hmm. um, in the 1980s, and that was a... That was a historical poetics. That was my attempt to kind of refract the poetry of Arthur Rimbaud through uh, the political culture of the commune and vice versa, to refract that culture through his poetry. And um, so that was my initiation into uh, uh, immersing myself in the reading of the texts um, Around the commune, and then increasingly, uh, I stopped reading those texts, and I began to just read the texts uh, that that remained for us, written by communards, by the people who survived. Mm-hmm. And um, that became a kind of a hobby, and I did that for many, many years, and occasionally I would teach a, a class on that material. And then finally, after 2011... Uh, I was struck, as I think many people were, by the return all around the world to a, a, a political strategy that was based on, you know, taking up space or, you know, seizing or occupying space. And uh, I decided to actually to go back to um, to the the commune as a kind of um, paradigm of that political strategy. And see what what 
what was new, you know, see what we could see that hadn't been said or seen before. In the introduction to the book, Kristen, you signal that part of the project here is to extend the temporal and spatial bounds of the commune outwards from the traditional emphasis on Paris and the 72 days um, in 1871. This was also an important intervention in the book on May 68. Could you talk a little bit about this as an approach in your thinking and scholarship more broadly? It's really a, it's really a particular kind of way to restage an event. And I think that if you think if you think about any any kind of a narrative, whether it's a fictional narrative or a historical narrative, the chronological frame that what what how does the event begin, how does it end, that constitutes the most important framing device of any kind of recounting of a récit. So if you play around with that, you're guaranteed to see things a little differently. For example, um, in the case of 68, you know, there were, when I began to work on 68, the, the cliches were <laughs> numerous, but some of them were things like, you know, France was bored or 68 was a, a peal of thunder in a serene sky. That, <laughs> and, um, and I thought, well, how could that be the case with, our, with the Algerian, you know, the end of the whole uh, French Empire and the Algerian War in such close proximity, and many people said, "Well, that I don't know that that, 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 that there was no relationship between these two things." And yet, when I be- began to talk to a lot of militants and do a lot of reading, it was clear that there was a significant minority, but still significant, who were politicized by. Um, the anti-colonial nationalisms of the early part of the 60s. And that, 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 and so I decided, in fact, to begin my narrative of 68 not with um, the student throwing the, the rock through the, the window of the American Express building on Rue Scribe, but instead begin it with the first mass movement in France in the 1960s, which was the movement of um, Algerian workers on uh, October 17th, 1961, and by mm-hmm. by denaturalize. See, see, that's the that's what you do when you when you change the chronology. You can denaturalize all of the myths of origin that have congealed around the telling of the story of an event, um, and so. By doing that, by by beginning somewhere else, you can see things uh, that you can't can't see otherwise. And and what you could see by beginning with that mass movement was that there, in fact, was uh, a, a connection between um, you know between the the violence at the end of the Algerian War, the politicization of certain young uh, French people. Uh, through their dis- disidentification with the French state regarding uh, the Algerian situation, that this then erupts, a lot of it is is what erupts, you know, five or six years later in the streets of, of Paris and elsewhere in France. So, you know, I, I, um, I noticed, in fact, that, that later, you know, after my book came out, there were... Other French historians like uh, Zancarini Fournel and some of the big books that came out in 2008 
that um, began, you know, to in, to say, oh yes, well, the Algerian the Algerian uh, events are part of the narrative of the events of '68. Um, but you know, then they don't know how to end it. <laughs> They still, they still end it with the election of François Mitterrand, and I think that's that's a ridiculous place to end uh, a political movement like '68. Uh, in this book, in addition to resisting some of those traditional chronological boundaries and spatial boundaries of the history of the commune, you're also resisting narratives that have incorporated the commune into either a French Republican history or into a history of state communism. So why is this? important, and what does it free up in terms of, you know, the interpretive, analytic, political possibilities for how we think about the commune? Well, that is a major uh, goal of the book, and I was helped along. The the goal was really to free uh, the commune, (laughs) liberate the commune, (laughs) um, from those two historiographies, because they have effectively instrumentalized uh, the event for you know, for their own purposes. And those two historiographies, whether it be um, official state socialism, um, uh, I was helped along by the, by, by 1989, you know, after the, after the end of official state socialism or more or less the end of it, uh, the commune emerges as, as, as a kind of a different sort of store, uh, event. It's no longer, it no longer has to play the role of being the failed insurrection mm-hmm. that the Bolsheviks come along and then, you know, produce the correct, uh, version of. And as far as, as, the way in which the commune figures in standard French national history, I mean, we all know the story. It's like 1789, 1830, 1848, 1871, 1871 is the last gasp of the 19th century. But it's, it, I've always felt that 1871 does not really fit in that, in that uh, sequence, that it, it, it's not, it's not simply because of the the enormity of the massacre of the communards, but but also because of the aspirations of the uh, insurrection. It, it it's not it's not part of the uh, you know radical dimension of the making of French republicanism. Its aspirations were much uh, larger. That it, it had nothing really very. You know, they were frantically anti-state, and they really didn't, they were really very, let's say, disinterested in the nation. So, in addition to responding to these historiographies or freeing the commune from it, who would you say that you're speaking to in this book? Like, who's your, who's the book for? Well... It seems to be for a lot of people because <laughs> very different people are reading it, I'm, which is probably the best thing that can happen. I, 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 it is a scholarly book. It's based on, as I said, a, quite a lot of um, years, actually, of, of the reading of these texts and careful uh, study of the language uh, of the communards, you know, the words that they used and the... The words that they disputed, and the, it, it's really my attempt to kind of reconstruct or restage the the, the whole phenomenology of the event. So it's it is very 
if you if you will, kind of historically um, grounded. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I I think one of my the major groups that I'm addressing um, is is uh, those militants today who who look to the commune as to find a kind of usable archive of um, legacy ideas. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to make that available again because people are very, very curious about the commune. And now, as I say, if you, if you, if you can, if you can make it available to people so that they see that it's not just, you know, uh, one in a series of, 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 um, French insurrections, you know, that built towards the making of the French nation. Uh, and if you see that it's not, you know, the the um, something that would later end in the the founding of the of Stalin and the Soviet Union, then then it it, it does become, you know, usable again. The first chapter of the book, Kristen, focuses on, and I'm quoting you here, this thick strand of internationalism that runs through the insurrection, colors the culture that preceded it, and continues in the experience of the survivors. So I want to ask you about this internationalism and this term that the communards use and that you place particular emphasis on, this idea of the universal republic. Yeah, you know, there's been a certain amount of attention to the internationalism of the commune, but generally when historic what historians do is they they really count, you know, the how many Italians were there and the Polish generals and you know and and it's true that some of the more visible players um, in the movement were uh, not French, but it it seemed to me that if as I felt from reading the material written by the survivors, if this word a genuinely international aspiration, then you'd have to find it in other ways. And so what I looked at was actually the way in which ideas uh, crossed borders and um, came, you know, for example, uh, a figure that is very important to me is is Elizabeth Dimitrieff, the young uh, 18-year-old uh, Russian who in effect becomes a kind of human transversal in the commune during the commune by uniting the political and theoretical ideas of the two most important theorists of the era uh Chernichevsky in Russia and Karl Marx then in England and she manages to bring those uh those two thinkers together theoretically um biographically and in action by by her um, her participation in the founding of the women's union during the commune, which was the most um, the largest and most successful uh, organization of the commune, and it's built around these the, her her attempt to bring together the economic ideas of of Marx with. Um, Chernichevsky's belief in the in in the emancipatory dimensions of these communal forms. When communards called for a universal republic, I think the move to resist uh, nation and state comes across pretty clearly. What did they mean by republic? 
the, you know, the phrase, of course, comes from uh, uh, the, the French Revolution, 1789, and it was uh, it's a it's a phrase from Anacarsis Clute, who was a Prussian-born um, uh, supporter of the French Revolution, and who who um, uh, you know who, who who was who was part of the the sort of flicker of internationalism. Uh, uh, of 1789, and and so in that sense, there the communards' use of that phrase is both an acknowledgement of, obviously, of the legacy of the most radical aspects of the of 1789, but it's also you know they also use it for their own purposes. So so it's not used in exactly the same way that that Klutz used it, for example, and it, and instead it opens up. It's it's a kind of a portmanteau for for um, uh, carrying or or um, vehiculing uh, these these desires that precisely can't be uh, can't be absorbed by um, the nation or the state, and so um, when they what. So, so republic is in there from from before, and then, uh, but their notion of a universal republic has everything to do with their sense of themselves as a local unit in an international horizon, in in a kind of federation of other such units. So, so we talked about how you, how you shifted the chronological bounds of you know, May 68 in, in that book. And in this first chapter of this book, you take us back to another starting point. So where, where do you start? <laughs> and, and why is that the moment that you choose uh, in, in this book? The, you know, the standard beginning is, of course, the affair of the canons and, you know, Thiers' um, bumbling attempt to take back the, the, um, the arms that the uh, workers of Paris had themselves you know, uh, purchased and um, they were busy protecting. But uh, my feeling was that if you're going to, uh, if you're going to view the, the commune as I see it, as a kind of uh, democracy against the state, working against the state, you can't, in order to do justice to that, you can't begin with the state. You have to begin with the praxis that um, that emerges against the state. In the same way that I would never begin a story like this with, say, a single intellectual like Proudhon and then try to show how the actions of the communards either fulfill or don't fulfill Proudhon. Mm. Um, so there's all sorts of ways you, could, you can go about things, obviously, but my feeling is that in the case of the commune, you have to go back to... The, uh, the place where the desire for something like a social commune um, began to emerge. And that place or those places are the clubs that, um, and reunions that uh, began to spring up all through the city of Paris in the final two years of the empire. Now, you know, I'm not at all alone in saying this, that uh, there's 
books like uh, Del Hotel, uh, L'Origine de la Commune, these books have been saying this for quite some time. There's a whole minority strand within French historians uh, which put the emphasis on, on the importance, the incredible importance of what happens at the end of the, the empire when the emperor is forced to sort of loosen up on some of the censorship laws and the laws against association. And workers begin to gather for the first time in years. Uh, and, you know, all sorts of different kinds of, of people, old people from 48, old militants, women, um, and, and they begin to, uh, uh, speak together and discuss things together for the first time. This is enormously important. I think this is, uh, for me, as an as a kind of origin story, uh, it's it's there that you have a kind of exercise in practical democracy that is in and of itself a sort of embryo of the form of the commune. And there were communards like Arthur Arnoux who at the time were saying the commune already existed in these meetings. Mm-hmm. The second chapter of the book, Kristen, is, well, I guess the title track, uh, Communal Luxury. So let's talk about that term, that phrase, communal luxury, what it meant at the time of the commune, why you've chosen it. Um, as the title of the book and, you know, how it's working for you as a kind of motif throughout? Well, you know, the phrase is not a big slogan of the commune. I found it actually tucked away in the very last sentence of the manifesto that artists uh, put together when they were federating under the commune. And it's a a phrase that's attributed to... um, Eugène Poutier, who's, of course, better known as the, uh, the author of the Internationale. Mm-hmm. But, um, uh, one of the, you know, one of the, the methodological, if you, if you want to call it that, um, dimensions of, of my work is that I, I, I like to experiment with, in the same way, um, you can restage things by altering, expanding the chronology or contracting the chronological frame. You can also change things by moving the cast of characters around. And uh, so what I did was to push Courbet uh, off the the stage. And, you know, he's the one who gets all the attention. (laughs) He's the the big guy, you know. He's the only big artist who stayed. All the all the rest fled, and so um, so he gets a lot of attention, and he you know was of course had had to had to um, was made to try uh, you know was done for um, paying the uh, price of the re, re, rebuilding the Vendome column and all that. So, but what happens when you move Courbet off the stage? Then someone like Potier becomes very visible, and when Potier becomes visible. Then something like communal luxury comes into focus. And what he meant by that in the phrase, the phrase is something like, we will work, we will work cooperatively towards future splendor, communal luxury, and the universal republic. That was the sentence. Mm -hmm. And what they meant by that, and you know, Putia was a decorative artist. He was what was called a, uh, artiste industriel. And, um, what he meant was 
something like public beauty. So they were calling for um, the amelioration of public space, of uh, you know, making sure that everyone had a right to work and live in a pleasing environment. So already, you know, you're, you know, what looks like to be just a merely decorative kind of demand already changes quite a bit when you say the right to live and work in a pleasing environment. If that were actually the case and everyone had that, then you're really talking about overturning an amazing series of hierarchies. Mm-hmm. But in the case of someone like Poitier, what he was initially concerned with was overturning the hierarchy of um, that that's at the core of the artistic world, which is the one that grants an enormous amount of privilege and status to fine artists like Courbet, and, which was a status that, you know, theater performers or... Um, skilled artisans or uh, vaudeville um, uh, writers, they had no way of sharing under the Second Empire. So, so they, were, they were calling for oh, dismantling a very ancient socially overdetermined categories of artistic practice. And, you know, I trace this idea through um, the figure of Napoleon Gaillard, who is a shoemaker who insists on being called an artiste chaussurier and who became the head of barricade construction during the commune and constructed some rather extravagant (laughs) barricades. So there's all sorts of ways of seeing what goes on in the commune as an attempt to constitute a kind of everyday aesthetics of process. And this is a way of, of, of making the whole process of self-emancipation visible. And, and there was also a, a sort of an accompanying or an attendant uh, program for Poitiers and others around the reform of education. Can you tell us a little bit about that aspect of things? Yeah, I mean, I, I would have to tie it in also with the with the the other the, the more far-reaching dimensions of of communal luxury because just to finish up with that i think that that eventually what what as you as you sort of push the idea and i i do it primarily through the work of william morris um is is that you eventually reach the the something like the end of luxury founded on class difference. So this is, this is opening out into perspectives of, of social wealth that, that are entirely new, you know, so it's, it's wealth that's calibrated outside of exchange value. Um, so, so in, in these ideas of equality in abundance, it's very, for me, these ideas are very important today because they they really go up against all of the the emphasis on you know austerity and everything we heard, especially during the the Greek events of, of recent time. Mm-hmm. Um, but but uh, these notions of commonwealth um, uh, that you that you can see um, in in. Morris is the Morris develops it in terms of useful production and uh, 
ultimately by the end of the book the you can you can take the idea all the way towards the design of a of an ecologically viable human society so so what's what begins as a as a very you know what seems to be a kind of minor demand on the part of some industrial artists really is uh, a number of, of 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 political ideas and and gestures and thoughts that are at the center of of what the commune really means to us today. As far as education, uh, the the way that that fits in is that is that the Poitiers and the others demanded a form of of um, of education that, and this was a demand that existed for some time in working class circles. It was it was it was a it was a, de- a demand that everyone, regardless of gender, regardless of class, that every child be trained simultaneously in theoretical knowledge, what we would think of as, you know, education today, and the learning of a trade. So that there would be, uh, this was designed to sort of break down the division between intellectual and manual labor, but that to do it in a very practical way by, by, by saying that everyone had to do this, that this was, that, that this was the, um, uh, you know that it should it should not be the the fate of the working class boy to inherit the tra- inherit the trade of his father or uh, uh, so that was that was the that was at the center of their notion of education and you know what what remains of it of course is that is um, is what the third republic did with education which is they took from the communards uh, the idea of free mandatory education, uh, lay education. And, um, but they did not <laughs> take it as far as to. We've talked about the, well, this idea of a, you know, critique of class hierarchies and inequalities and, and also a resistance to nation and state. What, if any role does a critique of empire play in communal thought? Well, yes. It, well, you, the, where you can see such a critique is again in the discussions of uh, that take place in the um, in the working class reunions in, at the end of the empire. There are there are um, you know extensive documentations of the conversations that went on and the you know the speeches that were given, and it, there is a strikingly anti-chauvinistic dimension to those discussions so that um, they uh, they were the communards were for example very um, uh, aware of what was going on and, and critical of what was going on in you know the French invasions of Crimea Mexico Algeria they speak constantly of Africa mm-hmm. and uh, so so there is so there at least you, you can see a uh, uh, a critique of empire. I th- I think that the gesture of destroying the column is a very eloquent anti-imperial uh, statement. In the second part of the book, Kristen, you really 
focus on the afterlife of the commune. I mean, not that it doesn't come up in the first part of the book, but you're really focused on emigration and exile and encounters between thinkers and contexts outside of, of Paris and outside of France. Um, and you discuss figures like Kropotkin, Morris um, in detail, and also Marx's reflections on the commune. Um, so maybe just to get us into the realm of thinking about what kinds of reflections these figures had on the commune, but also how the commune changed what they thought about other contexts and events and how the commune and the events of the commune shifted their political perspectives. Well, you know, I I was really um, struck by what happened when the refugees from the commune, uh, who mostly gathered in Switzerland and, and London, what happened when they met up with some of their supporters and the, and the, the kinds of, of discussions and networks and new projects that emerged from these sets of uh, encounters. And Kropotkin figures very strongly in, in both in, in England and in Switzerland. He, he, um, what's, what's amazing about well, what was important to me about even thinking about someone like Kropotkin and even more Morris, Morris who is not generally associated with the Paris Commune, mm-hmm. people forget that he was actually the the foremost British um, supporter of the Commune. But the reason why I even decided to design the book in this way and to consider this sort of the, the centrifugal effects of the commune, you know, that not, I think you used the word afterlife. I wouldn't, afterlife is what I did with 68. That's probably what I did. Where yeah. <laughs> like 10 years, 20 years, 30 years later. The commune book is entirely synchronic for the most part. It's, it's, it's just what occurred in the lifetime of the commune arts. So it's really about the, um, shock waves that that expand out geographically from from the event and what happens when people like Kropotkin in St. Petersburg or Finland or 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 Morris when they learn about what had occurred in Paris and you have to remember that there was an amazingly strict uh kind of censorship that um made it very difficult for people to know what was going on but even afterwards you know then then when they encountered these refugees and when they began to to um work together on various projects another major figure is uh Elisee Reclus mm-hmm. who is himself a communard but who was already very well known as a geographer at the time and who and Kropotkin himself was also a geographer so they they uh, initiated a number of projects that are both political and geographic. And I, I look at how, for them, their work as geographers was, in fact, inflected by what had occurred in the commune. So, you know, when people are looking at the history of the commune and the role of the commune in thinking and activism on the left, what Marx has to say uh, is, is so central. Uh, how does the book make an intervention along these lines in terms of Marx's response to the commune and how the commune changes his own uh, perspective on revolution uh, possibilities for the future. Well, what's going on of interest in Marxist theory right now is 
the attention that's being paid to the last 10 years in Marx's life. So those are also the last, the 10 years after the commune. Marx is dead in 1883. And in those years after, well, when the commune occurs for Marx, it's the first time that he has something like a living, breathing example of people conducting unscripted, non-capitalist life. <laughs> so this is an, ama- an amazing uh, occurrence for him. Uh, he can see the conduct of people behaving as though they were the owners of their own lives and not just wage slaves. And he can see that for the very first time. So this has an amazingly strong effect on his uh, own theory. I mean, it, he goes, it, it causes him to, in effect, break with theory itself or to begin to write a kind of, of uh, theory that, has history at the center of it. You know, you have those three, those great books that, uh, um, well, the Civil War in France that is is not at all the same kind of a book as as Capital. But what happens to Marx uh, at the theoretical level is that he begins to draw back from the kind of of way in which he had theorized the necessity of a centralized state uh, and begins to think about other paths towards socialism. Um, the famous line, uh, I don't know if I can reproduce it now, that, you know, it's sort of the, I, I always I always call it the Audrey Lord lesson, <laughs> which is that um, you can't, you know, you can't use the master's tools to dismantle the master's house. That's the lesson that, that Marx learns from the commune, that you can't, you can't, you know, you can't criticize. You don't have to become a bishop to criticize the Catholic Church. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to centralize the state to overcome the state. You don't have to work out, work through it. So, you know, so he, he sees this, um, in the, in the action of the communards, and and this alters his entire path. Really, you know, it's it's the the materials that interest him, the, his way of going about things, his what what counts for him. For example, he begins to become fascinated by all sorts of of the residue of 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 pre capitalist. Um, formations that were st- that were at at the time still existed you know that were were um, persisting in the countryside he began to become very interested in the Algonquins in, in you know in, in ancient sort of tribal cultures and to, he, his attention turns away actually from Europe and and to, towards the world outside of Europe and I talk a lot about how it was the example of the commune that pushed him in that direction. Well, and there's also, not just in Marx, but in the work of some of the other thinkers that you look at, this turn towards the consideration of the possibilities, the revolutionary possibilities of the pe- peasantry as well. Right? Yes. 
Yeah, I mean, there was a return on the part of all of these thinkers. This was a very big aspect of socialist thinking in the 19th century, but the commune really helped it along with, uh, was for people like Kropotkin and Reclus and Morris and even Marx. Um, they all go back to an older current of communist tendencies. So, you know, the German, tribes, the direct democracy of, of medieval Iceland. You know, medieval Iceland figures very strongly in the in the imaginary of the of the time. So the challenge for all these people um, was really how do you bring together this was the theoretical challenge that they all are trying to work out and that I discuss at length in the end of the book is how do you think together theoretically what occurred in 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 Paris in that insurrection in probably the most modern you know European capital? Mm-hmm. How do you think that together with the persistence of these older agrarian communist forms? How do you bring those two things together? How does the book? contribute to our thinking about this kind of persistent binary uh, in political thought or the the pitting of these two isms against one another, anarchism and communism. What contribution is the book making along those lines? Well, one of the things that fascinated me, and again, in order to be able to see this material, I had to just push. I talk about Marx, but when it comes to the period Directly after the commune, 1871, 1872, in standard histories, that period is usually thought of as the moment of, or is remembered as the moment of the ending of the the First International, and that demise is always attributed to the rivalry and the between Marx and Bakunin or the you know the feud the disputes between the anarchists and the and the marxists and so i decided once again to just put those two graybeards off the stage and so i pushed them off and 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 then once again you can see an enormous number of other people like reclus like um like Morris, like uh, they, these people who who were neither slavishly uh, bonded to Marxist thought nor to anarchist thought, but who were engaged in a kind of a bricolage of, you know, using elements from both uh, bodies of thought and um, and and who you know may have been personally very close to Marx or to Bakunin, but who had no no interest in this rivalry, and who were in, engaged in in um, in coming up with some very practical uh, uh, usages of both uh, you know tendencies, and this was very exciting for me because I, I realized that. It's very close to what's happening today. I, I think that uh, nowadays, with the you know, possibly because of the demise of of some of the most sectarian kinds of figures, uh, we have younger people. I think are drawn to that same sort of um, what I'm calling bricolage, or sort of a, a, a mixture, a creative mixing. 
In the last chapter of the book, Kristen, you explore these ideas about solidarity, mutual aid, fellowship. How are some of the different thinkers uh, that you look at in that last chapter in the book considering or mobilizing ideas about solidarity? And what are some of the differences and what's, what's the common ground that, they, that some of them share? I think the common ground that they share is that they are, they, are, they are convinced that solidarity is not an ethical position. It is not a moral position. It is a political strategy. In other words, it's not just a strategy. It's an absolute necessity. And this goes back to the kind of uh, you know, non-sectarian dimension that I was talking about, that, that you had anarchists at the time who believed that the greatest danger in the world was capital. Or you had uh, Marxists who, um, who, who were intensely uh, interested in the sort of anti-state sort of communal dimensions of, that were, that, that, you know, is generally associated with anarchists. So it was, it's, it's, it was a time when a certain amount of solidarity was actually available because there, there, you know, the, the, the partisanship was not as pronounced as it sometimes has been. But as far, so, so one aspect of their, their rethinking of solidarity, which I found especially intriguing was came from figures like Kropotkin and Reclus, who I mentioned were geographers. They were also sort of scientists. So their notion of solidarity is again, sort of worked through a sort of science uh, dimension so that it involves not just the human species, but a solidarity with other species, with, um, well, these were ideas that we would call uh, ecological, um, Mm -hmm. but, you know, the word didn't really, wasn't really around then, but it's very much the case that, that, it had to, it had everything to do with uh, an almost um, interspecies sort of notion of of uh, working together. You know, Kropotkin goes back and he rereads Darwin and he 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 shows <laughs> that that uh, that there's a there's an underside to Darwin that that it's not just you know ruthless competition and survival and, you know, struggle in a, in a heartless, you know, world. He shows that even in Darwin, there's another strain, which is the cooperation of species with each other. And, uh, um, you know, so th- these were, the, these were the, the kinds of ideas that were being um, thought about. Another reason why they viewed solidarity as, a necessity and and not as a you know sort of a, a a a good moral position is that they were very concerned with the problem of isolation and isolation of course was the problem of the Paris Commune you know the the Versailles worked very very hard to isolate Paris from the rest of the country and they succeeded and um, so they were these these thinkers after the commune were acutely aware of the problem of isolation and they put it at the center of, of what they, they had to concern themselves with. And so, for example, you know, they, they are not in favor of these kinds of, 
you know, anarchist communities that get set up in the countryside all by themselves and, you know, these, these kinds of little uh, Icarian sort of colonies, um, they, they viewed that as, as too dangerous in, in terms of, uh, of uh, what can happen under extreme forms of isolation. You pointed out earlier, Kristen, that this that in this book you're not um, focused on the afterlife, but more the the lifetime of of uh, those who lived and, and and experienced and witnessed even from afar the the commune. Mm-hmm. The book shifts our place of beginning and thinking about when the commune starts. What's the other end of the of the chronology? Well, I was, I was, I've always believed that, that Henri Lefebvre was correct. He was talking about 68 when he said this, but he said, you know, the ideas and the theory of a movement is only, there are only generated by and after the movement, not before it. So I've taken that to heart. I, I, you know, so I don't really spend too much time with Blanqui and Proudhon and, and some of the thinkers before the commune. But I wanted to look at what precisely the theoretical prolonging of the commune uh, looked like. And uh, this is why I, I, I opened up the life of the commune beyond the massacre and this is a this is a difficult decision because you know in in no sense of the word did i want to minimize the significance of the massacre mm-hmm. i think that you one could spend one's entire life thinking about little else except that massacre it is so extraordinary it is what to think of the scale of it the i mean you have to use genocide, you know, really to uh, talk about the way in which the state went about exterminating one by one and en masse its class enemy. And this is just an extraordinary act, and I can only think of it in comparison to something like the Turks and the Armenians or the, you know, the United States and the American uh, Native Americans. It's almost as though the foundation of a modern state depends on some sort of a genocidal act like this. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't know if there are people who theorize the, the foundation of states in that way, but it, it seems striking to me that you almost always come up with some, have something like this occurring. And in the French case, this is the foundational act of the Third Republic to just wipe out thousands and thousands of your own people. So this is, it is an amazing thing, and I, as you can tell, I can get very worked up thinking about it. But for the purposes of the book, I decided that you couldn't – it is such a huge thing that you have to sort of, as I said again, you have to move it off the stage a little bit. You have to uh, not minimize it but not focus on it directly. And when you don't focus on, on it directly, you can then see – what happens when the survivors go about, you know, the rest of their lives. And it's fat and that is, is a fascinating dimension that um, I first learned about when I read Lucien Descaves' uh, incredible novel, uh, Filemon Vieux de la Vie. Uh, it's an amazing novel. Um, he, he befriended all of the, uh, 
ex-communards when they were allowed to come back to Paris after the amnesty. And he became one of the crucial figures in, um, in, in putting together their memory. He wrote, you know, he wrote the initial introductions to Louise Michel and Potier and all the others. So, Kristen, I've been wanting to talk to you about this book since it came out. But one of the advantages of waiting a little bit before before speaking with you is that I get to ask you about what kinds of responses you've been getting and the conversations that you've been having about the book with, you know, in France uh, in particular, but elsewhere and uh, with different uh, thinkers and scholars and uh, activists on, on the left. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what the the, the life of communal luxury has been like so far? It, well, it's been really very interesting for me because I, I did go on a, a, a kind of a tour around France speaking in bookstores. And, and that was fascinating because the, what I learned was that um, there isn't much known about the commune among ordinary French people. You know, so that means that not much is getting taught at all in schools. And this is, I'm not speaking of militants. Mil, if you have a militant formation in France, you know a great deal about the commune. Mm. But the ordinary people, ordinary people don't really know much, and they just have a few iconic images in their head, like the head of Louise Michel. <laughs> <laughs> Louise Michel is now the patron saint of the commune. She's, she is everywhere. And, um, and in fact, you know, they wanted to dig her up and put her in the pantheon. That was a, that was a feminist demand a couple years ago. Uh, so, so she's, she's very much a kind of a mainstream, um, now image of, of the commune. So I learned that, that they, de- they don't really know too much that there's not much in the schools. And then, um, and, and yet there is, there is an enormous curiosity. There's a, uh, and a, and a desire to um, to see oneself within the lineage of the commune. I mean, one of the things that um, I was there in uh, at the Place de la République on March 31st, and I wondered how long it would take before they rebaptized right. the Place de la République. I thought that they might rebaptize it as the Place de la République Universelle, <laughs> <laughs> but they chose Place de la Commune. Um, so, and then, of course, you know, after 2011, France was not active at all in that year, unlike all, everywhere else from Tahir Square to uh, Montreal to Oakland, you know, nothing mm-hmm. really happened. But now, uh, you know, I've, I've been down to um, Notre-Dame-des-Landes, uh, the, uh, you know, these kinds of rural communes in the, in, in the south, of France that are extremely interesting and that are um, engaged in a kind of of uh, revisiting of different kinds of communal forms and that very much see themselves in that in the lineage of the Paris Commune. Um, so, so that you know, that's all. That's all. That's all very, very interesting. I think what's happening now, especially uh, in these most recent months in France, is is fascinating. Uh, as far as other discussions, you know, the oh god, you know, there's a, there's always there's a some of the, some of the reviews I I find have been kind of have flattened the book out. Some have been very very uh, 
have gotten the book completely right. Others have just kind of gone back to the old story. And, and I would say I've had equal numbers of attacks from anarchists and from Marxists. <laughs> I think I've done something right. I uh, I had an interesting, very interesting sort of debate with Alain Badiou, who um, insisted on telling me that the commune was a failure over and over and over. And uh, and this was amazing because it, it clarified my ideas about why I think it's important to think of these events in the past as resources for the present rather than lessons. Mm-hmm. Because he was very much adopting a kind of pedagogical attitude, you know, in that the past exists to teach us lessons, or we have to teach the past a lesson. We have to say what went wrong, what mistakes they made, why didn't they take the money out of the bank, why didn't they march on Versailles, why were they so disorganized militarily. You know, there's there's always that perspective of what I call backseat drivers, <laughs> who, you know, go back and say, oh, you know, we can learn from this. And my feeling is, is that that's, that's the wrong model, you know, but it's an enormously tempting model because it, it, you know, it makes you feel like you have the power to say, well, they were wrong and, you know, they acted too soon or they acted too late or, you know, it's, it's very, very pleasing to be able to do that. But I think that, that if you put yourself in that position, you are uh, eliminating any relationship at all to what is experimental about politics and art. And you're just, um, you know, you're sort of, you're sort of saying that uh, even now in 2016, we can go back and judge an emancipatory event according to certain kinds of standards that we all agree on that should have been reached, but that weren't, or, you know, I I find that this kind of retroactive thinking very, very disturbing in a way. It's, it's, um, so I've had some of that. I've had people kind of going back to that and saying, well, you have to, you know, in this, in this program, the debate I did with Bud Ewer, I argued with him and argued with him. And, and to get away from this idea of the lesson. And then when I looked at the, um, uh, the, the title that, that, uh, Media Park had given it, they called it the lessons of the conference. <laughs> <laughs> There's no escape. <laughs> No escape. <laughs> so, Kristen, what's next for you? What are you working on now? Well, I'm not doing much. I'm really, um, I'm teaching in a prison, and uh, I'm uh, going, I'm spending the, the year in France. Actually, I'm, I am doing a, a bit of a tour of, um, of some of the places that I mentioned to you uh, mm-hmm. uh, down in the south, and I'll probably write something about that, about what's going on now. Well, I just want to thank you so much for speaking with me today and for writing the book. Oh, well, thank you. This is really fun talking to you, Roxanne.